and welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hello, Patrick. Hey, Jeff. Uh, with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing, Cider Made Simple from Chronicle, uh, blogging at Beer Vana, blogging at All About Beer. And with me is Patrick Monroe Emerson. Got to throw that Monroe in there from time to time, your Scottish heritage. Uh, professor of Economics uh, at Oregon State University, and uh, as well as a research fellow at the Center for Applied Microeconomic Research at the Sao Paulo School of Economics. We haven't mentioned that in a while, so got to throw that in there. Yeah. And you're, you're uh, also blogging at uh, Beeronomics. Yeah, and I'm a research fellow at uh, the IZA, which is an Institute for the Study of Labor Economics, uh, and I mention it because it's in Bonn, Germany, which uh, is a beautiful segue. Oh, man. <laughs> like professional yeah uh to uh the topic of today um today we are going to be uh talking to uh alan taylor uh and uh uh discussing the opening of uh, his new brewery um, but before we do that we should mention that uh we've got some uh, big news and a in a change uh some changes from the podcast we should cue the jeffersons moving on up we're moving on up that's right uh we uh are going to be joining a uh new endeavor uh from the All About Beer uh, magazine publisher, publishing group, let's call it. Uh, they're starting a, uh, um, uh, well, what would you describe it? A, a series of podcasts, a set of... I use the word portfolio. A, a, they're expanding into multimedia, uh, getting into um, uh, other media, and one of them is a uh, podcast. Yeah, they, they were... We'll, we'll see if they continue this. They were considering calling it All About Beer On Air, which I think is actually kind of cool. So we might be part of All About Beer On Air. So if you're listening to this, this should mean that we have been uh, uh, assimilated into the, into the fold of the All About Beer On Air, or whatever they choose to call it, um, a group of podcasts. Uh, we're really excited, and we appreciate All About Beer uh, helping us out. And, and as a consequence of that, we're not going to change the pod in any way except for try to uh, up our game. So... That is one of the reasons we're off-site doing uh, something new and fun here today. Yeah, so today we're actually at uh, a place called Zoigel House. It is a, a new brewery and a pub that's opened in the Lentz neighborhood in Portland. Uh, and we are here to uh, interview Alan Taylor, who is the uh, brewmaster, uh, part owner yep. uh, of uh, Zoigel House. Um, it's a, uh, a place that's been open for how long, Jeff? They've been open, uh, boy, they've been open for months, but the brewery was only recently installed, and the first batches of beer have only come off the brewery, out of the brewery in the last month or so. So yeah. it's, the, the brewery is only uh, like a month old. Yeah, so we're here, and Alan, Alan will join us shortly. He is a veteran brewer. Uh, he has planned this brewery for years. Uh, so we're going to talk to him about the process of opening a brewery, including the technical aspects, the business aspects, logistical stuff. Uh, choice of uh, neighborhoods and markets, uh, all that stuff um, that's yeah. coming up. There's a lot that goes into planning for a brewery, successful brewery, and figuring out how to get it in place. And we're going to talk to Alan about how he did that yeah. with this brewery here. And then once we do that, we're going to uh, talk beer with Alan, try some of his beer, and uh, talk to him about his brewing process. So uh, that's coming up. But first, the news. Uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. You talked about up in the game. See, that, uh, that was, that was uh, <laughs> boy, that was. Just spectacular yeah. uh, audio so effects. So I think I think uh, maybe after this one we should just have a have a uh, injunction, some embargo about uh, acquisition. I know. I'm getting really tired of this. But but what's the latest acquisition? Well, we have to do this one because it's an Oregon brewery, yes, right? We, we can't we can't ignore this one. We I, do. I, I'm 
completely consonant with your desire to who cares anymore at this point but but one of our local breweries did get purchased by uh, Miller Coors uh, they they picked up Hop Valley which mm-hmm. is a brewery down originally in Springfield but I, I gather they've now opened a second facility in Eugene which is oh, okay um, uh, Springfield and Eugene are like Minneapolis St. Paul they're twin cities mm-hmm. Uh, and Hop Valley is kind of an anonymous little brewery. It's got an anonymous anonymous name. Um, they make decent beer. I have no complaints about their beer. And their Springfield location is a little bit of a sort of a strip molly place. Yeah, right um, off the freeway. Yeah. So uh, interesting, though, that Miller Coors is seeming to be uh, pitching itself down the same road that Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. Um, and starting to acquire uh, local breweries rather than... Um, uh, I mean, they are actually... Uh, have been sort of more successful, I suppose, in doing the, I don't know how you want to describe it, but the, the crafty right. <laughs> the, in, the in-house craft or whatever. The, the yeah. in-house craft. Uh, but pretty soon they'll all be the same thing anyway. So. Right. <laughs> It'll all be one big brewing conglomerate. Well, and that leads us really well into the second point, uh, which is that the Brewers Association announced uh, the numbers for the the breweries they call craft, mm-hmm. uh, what they, the breweries in their, their organization and uh, the the ones that they track um sales for the first half of the year have gone up eight percent mm-hmm. uh which is a lower amount than in re- recent years even though that sounds like a lot of growth yeah it's very robust growth but relative to how they've been doing recently it's uh, a fairly market slowdown yeah and that's partly probably due to a bigger base it's harder to grow the bigger you are and it's probably partly due to the f- the slowdown of flagship brands like uh uh boston lager and uh, fat tire and Sierra Nevada pale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's, um, but it's probably also just typical of, of a, you know, you, you can only grow double digits for so many years before things eventually start to catch up with you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that it's, uh, pretends, um, any great crises coming along, but, uh, as I've been predicting for quite a while, there's going to start being some churn in the market. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats, um, for a while <laughs> yeah but the tide is rising a little bit more slowly and the number of new breweries in fact you put uh down here um that there are f- uh, 4656 breweries now operating in the u.s as of june 30th yeah huge number so that's a lot um and i think one the, the reason i connected to that other item is that the concept of craft is becoming muddier and muddier and less meaningful a term um because the consumer, I think, thinks of craft as being anything that's not a mass market lager, whereas the Brewers Association is concerned primarily with ownership structure, mm-hmm. which the average consumer doesn't care about at all. They care about the kind of beer that's being made. And now that yep. those two used to be separate, the ownership structure and the styles of beer were made by one group, but now they're, now there's no distinction and tracking the sales of, of IPAs means tracking the sales of IPAs made by very large breweries. That's right. And as a consumer, it's going to, it's getting harder and harder to keep track of who's, who's truly independent and right. who's been invested in by some venture capitalist and who's been bought out by, or partial, have a partial investment by a big brewery and who's wholly owned by a big brewery. It's, uh, it's going to get harder and harder to, to, to uh, keep it all uh, straight. And uh, in my personal opinion, all I care about is whether the beer is good. Yeah. And that is a perfect segue into uh, our next topic because Alan Taylor is the brewer of some very good beer. That's right. So uh, coming up, uh, our interview with Alan Taylor. And now we are back with Alan Taylor, who was off doing something in the brewery. 
and we fetched him and, and here he is and uh, just a little background on Alan who has kind of a complex history so we'll see how I do uh, he can he can weigh in if I get this wrong so uh, wrong <laughs> <laughs> The complex part. It's very yeah, simple. That's yeah, yeah. So th- it started at Linfield College here in Oregon, uh, in McMinnville, Oregon. Is that right, McMinnville? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you started homebrewing, and you were also doing German there. Studying math and German. Yes. Math and German. All right. Yes. And then you got you went to somewhere in the Midwest to get a master's degree. Yeah, between Linfield and Indiana University, I was in Freiburg, Southwest Germany, for a year. Okay. So pretty close to Basel and the. Swiss border, not Swiss, yeah, Swiss border, real close to Alsace, Lorraine, the French border, which was German and French, then German and French, and right. Freiburg bounced around a couple of times too, but in that southwest part of Germany, they went to IU Bloomington, got my master's in Germanic studies, they sent me on scholarship to Berlin, where I ended up switching from middle high German, where I met my wife in that class, to bring science. There you go. So that, that that was good. I probably was going to miss some of that. So you, you went to school at, at VLB, which is, go, go ahead and say that in German. Versuchsunlehranstalt für Brauerei in Berlin. That's why we say VLB. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can probably figure out what ICA is, too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's true. Uh, and uh, you interned there when you were in Berlin. I earned, interned at Luisenbräu, which was a brew pub just down the street from where I lived. Okay. And that brewmaster told me not to go to Weinstein, and he said go to the VLB where I went to school. Oh, and why is that? I've never heard this story. We're getting because, stuff here. Because um, to, to get my internship, first, uh, let me backtrack. When I was at IU Bloomington, I had some friends we homebrewed with. And when I was in Berlin, one of them sent me a magazine about, um, I don't know if it was all about beer or Zymergy, one of those bre- one of those publications. And it's, uh, there's an article about... All about beer, surely. <clears throat> I'm sure it was all about beer. It was good, yeah. That's the higher quality of the two. That's right. <laughs> um... So we're going to cut that part. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. We roll, man. No, we roll. We roll with cheese. <laughs> it's going to be heavy cheese because I cheese a lot. Um, so I was sent a magazine about um, brewing science and learning brewing studies in Germany. I thought that would be a lot better than going back to the Midwest or some small school somewhere where I probably didn't want to live and teach Germanic studies to people. I love German. I love Germanic studies. But that prospect didn't excite me as much as making beer, which I'd really grown to love. So I wrote Weinstein and I said, can I please do studies here? They said, you have to do an internship first. And I went down and got my internship with Norbert. Mm-hmm. And then Norbert said, why do you want to go to that land? Why don't you stay in this wonderful city and study at the VLB? And I was like, well, I didn't know the VLB existed. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. he said, let me introduce you to the director. So we drove over and met the director of the university, um, Professor Wackerbauer. And his questions were, he looked at my resume, saw that I had math and German background, and then he said, can he check gravities? <laughs> and Norbert said, yes. Said, okay, he's in. It's <laughs> like, wow, that's a great interview. Wow. Okay. I think I could have gotten in on you that. You could basically. have gotten in on that. That's, uh, that's like the, one of the things I can do. And then after that, you, you have bounced around. We want to get to the, the brewery, so we won't go through the, the rest of the long history, but you have brewed, uh, you managed a... a a uh, brew pub in uh, Berlin. In Berlin, as general manager at Bauhausbahnhof. Yes. And you also brewed in Bavaria. Yes. And you've brewed at uh, Full Sail, Spanish Peaks, Gordon Biersch, Widmer. Yes. And then uh, more recently, you started brewing at the Pints Brewery here in Portland, mm-hmm. uh, which led you to meet Chad Reniker. Yes. Who helped you uh, with this project, I think. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But Chad also opened another brewery in uh, Albuquerque. 
correct. Called Ponderosa, and you and asked you to be the brewmaster there. Is that correct? That's also correct. Yes. And so you are, and and you still continue these 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 tasks. Yes. So you're now a triple-headed. <coughs> uh, Brewmaster, you're the brewmaster of three choices. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. a hydro brewmaster. <laughs> if we, <laughs> if, if they close one of those, you'll have to open two more breweries, yeah. I guess. Exactly. So you have been uh, over the last uh, couple of years pretty busy, and I guess it's probably getting even more busy now. It's been very busy. Yes. This project, Zoigel House, I know you have been thinking about for years because back when I was writing the Beer Bible, I came to you so that you could assure me that Germany was not too hard for me to figure out when I was mm-hmm. writing about uh, Germany in the Beer Bible and before I went there, which I went there in 2012, so you were thinking about it in 2012. Yeah, I think it was 2011 when we started the project. So this is, I think, a indication of how long these, these projects can go from uh, idea to actual brewery. Yeah, so can you describe uh, where we are, uh, the, the place, what it is, how big, how big the brewery is? And- well, we were looking for the place. That's part of the whole the issue of finding a home. Yeah. And we didn't want to be in southeast Portland where there are a number of breweries, quite a few. I think we're over 60 by now in mm-hmm. Portland alone. Right. Portland City Limits. So that's something good PBS series, right? <laughs> yeah. Not music, but just beer. Right. Yeah. Just drink beer all day and think about Portland. So we were looking in Hillsborough and Beaverton, and we started looking in Oregon City. We looked even across the river at Washington State a little bit. And an advisor said we should check with the PDC and see if they have any properties that might be good for us. PDC being Portland Development Commission. Yes, which is part of the city. Mm-hmm. And their task is to raise the quality of living. Hence, um, I'm going to try and say this PC-like, to raise the tax revenue they get. So they spend a lot of money in a right. neighborhood, raise the value of the neighborhood, and then that gets repaid through the higher taxes for property taxes, stuff like that. Right, right. So it's a great system. that's worked wonders in a lot of neighborhoods in Portland. Um, even if you don't like gentrification, it does still do good things for the neighborhoods and brings them up to a good good level. So they have a big project in Lentz, and they actually own this building that we're working in. Lentz and just, is, yeah, yes. go ahead go ahead and explain. Lentz, Lentz is, is. Uh, it was its own little town for a very long time on the southeast outskirts of Portland. It was annexed at some point, I think, in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. The Interstate 205, which is one of the rings that goes around the city, cut right through the heart of the neighborhood and basically destroyed it back in the 80s, I think it was, wasn't mm-hmm. it? It's not that long ago. Yeah, yeah, it could be. So Lentz has kind of been dwindling since, but it's a great place, a lot of good people. It's one of the more affordable areas of Portland, which has really high um, real estate rates. Housing and rents are very expensive here. Um, so the neighborhood was trying to turn around and trying to grow and become a, a better place for all these families that have been moving in. And about 10 to 15 years ago, they put the light rail, maybe it's not that long ago, put the light rail in, and so there's uh, mass transit, fixed, fixed rail mass transit uh, yeah. servicing the neighborhood. Right, and it is just a block away from us. It's actually on our side street. It outlets down to our side street, which is okay. great. Yeah. So the PDC had this property, and it was being run by Bakery Still, which was on its last legs, and they said we can't look at it yet until it's actually... <laughs> stop walking and falling over and turn to dust and it ultimately did unfortunately for them hmm. so we came and looked at it and said yes this is a great place so the building has um, 74 7500 square feet okay. for the restaurant which encompasses the the kitchen the bathrooms um, the whole dining area the bar kids play area, all that kind of stuff we have all that in that 7500 square feet 
then there's a full upstairs and a full basement, mm. all at 7,500 square feet. So we have a large footprint that we have space for. We have a lot of storage space. <laughs> and then the brewery is on its own slab, which is another 3,000, 3,200 square feet in the back okay. of the building. And you can look at that through the what we call the brewer's library. We have a couple couches and a bunch of magazines all about beer and all the other good <laughs> magazines. And some other lesser. <laughs> and some of the other, you know, not quite as good magazines. So I've always been fascinated that you chose Lentz, though, because, um, as you mentioned, there are a lot of breweries. So this is southeast Portland, and, mm-hmm. and people know that there are a lot of breweries in southeast Portland, but that's miles away. Yes, and, the inner um, southeast Portland the is inner the southeast. high concentration of breweries. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an underserved area, but it's also an area that other breweries have skipped over and didn't see, didn't, didn't maybe think there are a lot of beer drinkers out here. The, the potential is lower. I know in other cities, the same kind of calculation is happening because, you know, brewery density is, is forcing other brewers to consider moving out, pushing out, finding, seeing if, if uh, in those out, underserved areas people will come in and drink beer. So what kind of calculation did you make? Did you have some way of figuring whether yes, this would be we, good? we had a couple of things we looked at. One is there is not such a thing as if you build it, they will come for breweries. You have to, there's a lot of thing, a lot of moving parts there. But if you look at Bend, neighborhood revitalization downtown bend what did deschutes do a huge difference mm-hmm. full sale hood river was a wasteland before full sale went in there and that was one of the invigorating parts to it <clears throat> excuse me mm-hmm. um bridgeport in the pearl widmer on an interstate all those right. neighborhoods have grown since those breweries have gone in there so they're real catalysts for urban development and that's that was a point we made the entire time we're looking for a building it's like these things work if you have yeah. the capital to put in a brewery because it's a very capital intensive then yeah. you have really good chances that you've thought about it more than just i'm going to put in a restaurant because my sister says i cook good fish right you know i'm going to open up a new fish shop well that doesn't work as well as i've been brewing for 17 years professionally and we have enough capital to get this thing up and running it's a different game yeah you know so that led us to believe that even if it were in a place like Lentz or somewhere else, that the chances of us building something long-term are very positive. Also, our brokers, our real estate brokers, did some demographics analyses of here versus Beaverton. So we're looking at a place in also on Max Line, on the, that's our fixed rail, mm-hmm. uh, in Beaverton. And the demographics were really similar. There was maybe five to $10,000 more household income over there. But there are also 5,000 restaurants in Beaverton. Right, so right. over in the Slentz neighborhood, there are a handful, especially where we're at. So we saw it as a positive. Also, yeah. it's right off the, the, the light rail. It's right off of 205. Foster's a big street. 92nd's a pretty busy street. So we know there's a lot of foot traffic and vehicle traffic that we can try and capture over time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, how big is, you, is the brew house? We have a 10-barrel system. And the, in the business plan, what? Uh, how much of your projected revenue is on-site sales and how much is going out the door in packages on the on the business development side in our business plan we started with probably 75 25 yeah. on-site to off-site and as distribution grows that will over probably overwhelm it at some point right but yeah we're looking primarily for in-house sales you get more bang for your brewing buck for selling a pint yep. of beer than you do for selling somebody else beer that they can sell a pint of beer for. Right, right. right. But there's still money in the door, but your turnover is significantly higher for, for draft sales yeah. in-house. And, and uh, what percentage, in a place like this, you have a, you have a full 
kitchen and mm-hmm. a full menu. Yes. Uh, and you do lunch, dinner every lunch day? Lunch and dinner every day from 11 to 10 p.m. every day. And what percentage uh, is food versus uh, beer? Food is around 60%. Yeah. Hmm. Something in that range. Okay. 60, 65. So, and that's not abnormal for brew pubs. That they're typically food heavy. Right. Yeah. And so it's important to get the kitchen right. Yes. Yeah. And so how do you go about finding the staff, finding the you people get who a lot of welts in your forehead. Because <laughs> <laughs> the tables are all dented. The walls are all dented. Yeah. Portland is in a really interesting state right now. Mm-hmm. The restaurant scene is extremely lively and invigorating yep. and wonderful. And as consumers, it's a great thing until the point where there are more jobs and there are cooks. Right. And then your cooks all are moving in from out of state, from Midwest, from the East Coast. There's a lot of people coming here just to cook. Mm-hmm. But then they also dance around a lot. They're almost as bad as brewers. Right. Brewers, uh, <laughs> yeah. If you've heard the different breweries I've worked at, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We do move around. Mine were typically for going to different schools, going to different countries, those kind of things. So that's why I moved quite a bit. But brewers tend to migrate around a little bit, which is healthy and it's good for them. They get a better scene of learning how to do things differently. And cooks right. are kind of the same. But... Uh, it's challenging. It's really hard to keep staff on the kitchen side. The brewery yeah. side is significantly easier. Once mm-hmm. you find those little gems, I just, I don't, I put blinders on them. Don't let them talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> You're mine. <laughs> I've got some great folks. All, the, all those other brewmasters are tyrants. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have this little ring that I slip over my finger and then I hold on to them and they can't. That's right. <laughs> and I call them out my precious. They're really freaked out about it. Why does he keep calling me that? So another thing, you know, uh, one reason people go to pubs, you know, when you go to a brewery in Portland is most most breweries have an on-site location, so they have an identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pints has kind of this uh, working class old. So Pints is the the other brewery that Alan started at. It's in um, one of the oldest sections of downtown called Old Town, and it has uh, sort of the the embodiment of old town it's kind of working class sort of historical and has the a feel of uh like what old portland might feel like fits in that that neighborhood well when you come to lint you could do anything i mean you're it's a wide open thing but people will come to a pub because they feel invited they feel Mm -hmm. comfortable it's got the kind of vibe they want that's always why people go to pubs. Mm-hmm. So how did you come with come up with the the Zweigel House theme and the design of the place? And like, what were you what were you trying to design when you were thinking about this pub? We had started this process in 2011, like we mentioned earlier, and we went to a kind of a marketing slash branding firm to mm-hmm. try and get logos and all those kind of things you need when you're running a brewery. Mm-hmm. Right. And they asked the three of us who are working on the project what our thoughts were and what do, what do we envision this to be? And we all had a different answer. <laughs> so he <laughs> said, you guys have your homework, go home, right. come back next week, we're going to meet again, you're going to figure out what your one idea is and how you're going to make that work. So Nick Roberts, one of the founders and one of the co-owners, he found Soigel, which is something that I'm not quite embarrassed to say I had never heard of. Oh. As a German trained brewmaster, and that is shocking that you hadn't heard of that. Yes. I heard of it from you, so I of course assumed you were the, the yes. font of all wisdom on. And the I Twiggle. wasn't. I wasn't really up to speed on Gulza back in 2006 and 2005 or 2003 when I was in Germany either. But I learned a lot about it in the meantime. Right. So I didn't know what Soigel was, so I looked it up and thought, hmm, "That's kind of interesting. It's a weird 
tradition. So there's, all just for the listeners, it's, yeah. there are yeah. five towns in the upper Palatinate of Bavaria, which is close to the Czech border. And those five towns hold on to this centuries-old tradition of having a communal brew house. The citizens of the town who then have the right to use the brew house can go there, make wort, uh, unfermented beer for the non-initiated there, sorry, make wort. And <laughs> we, we always make that mistake, too. We assume everybody knows what we're talking about. Right. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Because <laughs> people can read my mind. Yeah. I've never, my wife and I never have any, you know, miscues about what I'm thinking. Because <laughs> I'm always perfectly passing information. Yes. <laughs> so they make work, they take it home, and they ferment in their basements or their cellars, and they open up their houses like little pop-up bars on a rotating basis and sell beer, their own homemade-ish beer. Mm-hmm. Right. And sell some simple foods, some sausages, pretzels, things like that. And these are this is literally like people's houses. These are people's houses. So yes. you wander these are around living the neighborhood. Rooms. These are courtyards and their farms. These are buildings. It's just, it's pretty cool. So they have a calendar, the Zoygo calendar, and you can look and see who's up for like two or three days at a time. Yeah. And so we thought it was a cool idea. So we actually flew out to Bavaria. I had to go to a wedding in Hamburg, so it was really well timed. <laughs> the other nice. two joined us. My father-in-law, uh, Walter Kramer, Doctor Walter Kramer, <laughs> he. Um, he came down with us too. He's great because he's like a history buff. He's a physician, but he's a history buff and he knows everything. So we're driving through East Germany down to Bavaria and he's telling us every town he could tell us like for 15 minutes he could talk about it, which was awesome. <laughs> so we cool. get down to Bavaria and this is something he'd also never been involved in. This is a Zeugel idea. So he, he and three of us are just cruising around checking all these towns out. So we went to all the breweries, talked to a bunch of the brewers, spent a number of days there and saw this is the idea we want. We like this idea of community. We like this idea of sharing the brew house. We like the idea of opening our homes to people. We like this whole community basis concept. And while we were trying to get up and running, we talked to a number of brewers and very few of them were willing to even really consider the concept, but we just wanted, we had the capital to get started. We wanted to Mm -hmm. bring a tank in and ferment beer and then bring our bottler in and bottle the beer, let them share the bottler if we didn't need it, that kind of thing. And kind of a coexistence. This is before the soil idea really got deepened. Right. We were just trying to get up and running and nobody ended up helping us. <laughs> and I was obviously disappointed in that. <laughs> yeah. So now we also embrace that part of the soil. We okay. have a number of breweries who are working with us and a number who have contacted us as well. Some of them have their own tank here. Some of them would just do a quick contract brew for if they're short on beer and just help them out. Being the communal brew house, being the people who are there to actually help other people who, right. are, who are in a short spot. So this is uh, kind of an interesting flip on the the contract brewing idea. You're you're the instead of instead of having an invisible brewery behind a, a label, you're a, the brewery that that is visible that kind of helps other other right. people out. It's sort of interesting. And so, being in all these five towns as well, they're not rich parts. It's not the rich part of Bavaria. Right. It's, it's farmers. It's small towns and very very simple architecture. Very simple clean lines. So we went with some dark wainscoting with dark wood and very clean light colored walls which really evokes the, the places we went to all mm-hmm. over the place we have a number of german beer signs and you don't have any deer heads on the wall i have i actually have antlers from up upstairs i haven't, I haven't put them up yet <laughs> so in bavaria they always have antlers yeah we do have antlers That's <laughs> yes Got to my own, that. they were actually my own antlers oh excellent is that right not my personal for my head right. but no <laughs> Uh, from when you were a young buck. Was Sorry. Was a are they Bavarian antlers or are they Oregon East, antlers? Eastern Oregon. Yeah. Yes. Nice. 
So keeping some stuff from home. So that's what the whole interior is like. We have a really beautiful skylight in the middle on top of the bar that brings a lot of really nice natural light down onto the bar. We, have nice, a, yeah. we split the place up into basically three sections. One's the middle bar, which is the focus when you walk in. Mm-hmm. If you look to the right, there's more of the adult side area, and there's a banquet space, which we're in right now, which is nice and quiet. So right. how the, the guys who built the space out did a wonderful job where we had our opening night with a polka band and just a bunch of oompa, oompa, oompa. And, <laughs> yeah. there was and a, you were dressed in lederhosen, which blew my mind because you're a wife, Berlin guy. My wife hates them. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got them on that trip. You look like a bumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> she hates them. She's from Hamburg. They just hate lederhosen. <laughs> you looked very rustic. And there was a yoga like seminar going on here or something like that. And they could actually hear each other talk, even with the music just feet away from them. So right. this room's pretty quiet, which is cool. Yeah. And if you go to the left, then you go to the family side. There's a play area. There's a bunch of long tables for families to sit down. And then you can sneak a peek in the roof in the backside. Yeah. You can harass me, throw french fries at me, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Right. And so that's a question I had. Um, was it a, a question of the architecture and space? Um, or was it a conscious decision to... Um, you haven't hid the, hid the brew house, but you haven't sort of featured it. That is the space. Okay. It is impossible to feature the brew house yeah. in this building. You have to, there's just no place to do it. Right. If we were to try and install it in the middle of the space, it would just be a total mess because there's a full basement. Yeah. We'd okay. have to engineer everything structurally. And the back room was built, there were actually pizza ovens and bakery ovens back there, like really large industrial ovens for the bakery. Right. And that's where the gas is, that's where the water is, that's mm. where the trench drains are, that's where all that stuff is, and you don't want to reinvent the wheel and put it all in the front of the building and highlight it when it is really an industrial conceptual brew house that is there to make beer for distribution but that's a good question so you had a lot of the infrastructure in place yes back in the brew house the trench drain the big water pipes all that yeah Uh well the water was a five-eighths inch line coming Uh into this building and what did it need to be we have an inch and a half now. Yeah. Okay. We have plenty of water. We have more water over here. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't sprinkles, so we had sprinklers installed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it did have a freight elevator, which goes to all three floors, which is yeah. wonderful. We had a hood in the kitchen area, which is a significant cost. Yeah. There was two walk-ins. One was a freezer unit, which was converted to a fridge, and then we have another fridge unit, so we have space to put, I don't know, 20, 30 pallets of beer. We can go out and count them to be sure, but there's yeah. room to store, store some beer to begin with. So the infrastructure was here. And yeah. it has roll-up doors and two roll-up doors for a dock to get in and out. Right. So that's also quite helpful. So we walked in there with the construction team, and the owner of the construction team said, yeah, this is it. Yeah. We could just walk in through it, and this is it. Yeah. It's big yeah. up front. It's yeah. too big for now, but hopefully we'll grow into it. Yeah. But as far as the facility itself, it's a great facility for us. Yeah. Uh, how is it to work with the city? So this is one thing that, that breweries have to, to mess with when they're... There, there's various regulations. So what's the city of Portland like? Is it easy to start a brewery in Portland? The city of Portland has so much experience with this. Yeah. They're really, really, it's a, it's a well machine, well oiled machine. They do a very good job, yeah. I think it helped us being working with the PDC to some extent that there wasn't ever going to be blowback about having a brewery here. They, they knew they wanted it here. That was their first choice was mm-hmm. a brew pub yeah. for this space. So that was in the cards. And then... Um, yeah, everything, the inspectors, I think every inspector I've ever worked with has generally been really, everyone has generally been, that's a great thing. <laughs> <laughs> Almost everyone has been wonderful. <laughs> I've had a couple of experiences, not in the city of Portland, where I wasn't as excited, but 
if they find an issue, we deal with the issue as quickly as humanly possible, and they check it off, and off you go. Okay. So we rushed towards the end before we got opened, and and the the restaurant we had like one day of practice <laughs> the doors open. So right. that was pretty insane and silly yeah. and right. not the best way to open a restaurant, but the food was still I was shocked how good the food was the first yeah. couple of days. You like, survived wow. and yeah. reputation intact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you had uh, you had a, you were in a weird situation where you already had a second brewery so you could afford to not have your brewery installed when you opened yes. and still have your own beer here. Which yes. is not anything any other brewery yeah. will ever be able to replicate. I've never heard of that happening yeah. in that situation. Yeah. So we were really lucky. And I, I had two people mention the fact that it wasn't brewed on site as if that might have been something critical. Mm-hmm. And I said, it's my beer. I yeah. made right. it. I right. made it. It's made according to how I want it made. And do you like the beer? Right. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and you're, um, uh, it seems like you're, you're, you had a, a, an idea with the type of beer you're brewing that will follow the Zoigel House thing. So mm-hmm. it seems to be uh, not entirely, but predominantly German styles. Mm-hmm. And you're, you feel like that. I was, I was waiting for the question. Sorry. Well, it, <laughs> it is it is Portland, so you know it's IPAs, and uh, so I'm just yes. wondering, like that was that's a decision point, and, and you decided to go. Yeah, it went with the whole concept, the whole Bavarian communal brew house. My background studying brewing in Germany, all those things pointed to that being a differentiation point. Yeah. Something that I could do differently, hopefully better than most people here in the city, and. I think, as far as I know, I'm still the only German-trained brewmaster who actually has a brewing degree from Germany in all of Oregon, as far as I know. Sean Burke, doesn't he? Sean? Sean Burke at the Commons? He might. I don't know if he does or not. Yeah. So I think I'll he's check in with trained. him. Yeah, he may be. Just yeah. funny, because... We'll, we'll, we'll get our fact. We'll get our fact. Yeah, we'll, that's we'll, right. We'll, we'll put that. Yeah. Check on mm-hmm. Trump and Hillary, too, while you're doing that. But... I hear this Obama guy might not be born in the U.S. Uh, this is Portland, so uh, do you have to have an IPA? Yes, we do. No, we don't have to have an IPA for distribution, but mm-hmm. our distributors have also brought up that <laughs> unholiest of unholies and said, well, do you want to put an IPA out? <laughs> Maybe. So we're playing around with some different IPA ideas, but we, we brew an IPA that is basically the same in concept and, and execution as the one at Pines. Okay. So it's... And you're an American, so it's not like you're opposed to IPAs. No, I love IPAs. Yeah. We have a kegerator at home, and there's a keg of IPA in our kegerator. My wife's German, and she drinks IPA right. with me, and she loves it. She doesn't get IPA, and if she runs out of the keg, I get texts like, the keg's empty, or, <laughs> or why did you not bring me IPA today? Right. I don't care how busy you are. Bring me more IPA. Wow. So her go-to is an IPA. Yes. Interesting. And she's, she's, she's from North, Berlin? She was born in Hamburg, and we met in Berlin. Okay. She's an Oregonian now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. You can take the girl out yeah. of Germany, but you can't make her drink Kolsch or something. I don't know. I'm not sure where yeah, I was going with that. That was torture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, we don't fix it, though. Uh, okay, so... It's part uh, of our charm. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm curious. And this is obviously uh, with the PDC involvement. The location is quite big. But uh, when I've talked to people who've opened brew pubs, um, the figures in my head are sort of, if you want to scrap together some kind of... Uh, uh, brew pub um, you're probably talking a minimum of uh, half a million and if you want to do it right it's about a million bucks is that in the ballpark uh, we're significantly higher than that yeah 
Yeah, and part of it was, a lot of it was the build-out. Yeah. So I think the whole package, including the tenant improvements that the, the PDC put in the building and the short, uh, excuse me, the um, shell slash core improvements, like the water supply, the sprinklers, things yeah. like that, they have to put that in that no matter what was going to happen in this building. So they did that kind of stuff. They put the, a new roof on. They spent a lot of money on the on the building, which I consider part of the whole project, sure. even though it's really not money that we brought to the table. Right. But it was part of the whole whole deal. Yeah. So yeah, the brew house was, yeah, it's significantly higher. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. it's all uh, the brew house is beautiful, by the way. It, uh, yeah. I mean, th this is a decision point. You know, do you try to go on the, the shoestring? Some breweries try to they do a nano and they find a you know a building that's really small or whatever. And, and you know, do you have any thoughts about what you when you were when you were thinking about this, like go cheaper, smaller, or bigger? And yeah, we thought about all the million variations. Yeah. If you start small, then you're constantly buying new equipment, buying new equipment. And the thing is, you're not just buying a new brew house, you're buying a new boiler, you're buying a new chiller, you're buying new this, new that, mm -hmm. and then you have to move it all, and then you get to the building, and then you're dancing around and, and skipping around places, which is all fine. That's not necessarily what we wanted to do. We were still yeah. interested in the concept of having the restaurant be part of the project. So right. you yeah. don't really want to move restaurants around a whole lot. I don't think that's really easy to do. I don't think your public really likes that. Yeah. And so with the brewery, we tried to, or I tried to, I'll blame myself for everything. I tried to set it up so that we could have smallish batches that we could then use our at the brewery for the restaurant mm -hmm. and maybe share some of those with pints because we're really brother-sister breweries. It's slightly different ownership, but we get along pretty well. Yeah. We don't elbow each other in the backseat like my kids do. <laughs> <laughs> So we can make beer that they sell, they can make beer that we sell. It's totally legit here in Oregon to do that, which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted something big enough that I could make more of a production thing. So right. coming from bigger breweries like Full Sail and Widmer, you just want to crank beer out as quickly as you can to the best quality that you possibly can do. Yeah. So I have a three-vessel brew system with a dedicated mash tun mixer, so I can do step mashes for things like a German Hefeweizen where you want to hit about five different temperatures as right. you go through it. It's about a three and a half hour mash schedule. Nice. So all of you who don't do infusion, step infusion mashes, just think about that. Three and a half hours. It's great. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we have a feature on here uh, sometimes where we talk about weird uh, brewing techniques and I may force Patrick to do a ferulic acid rest uh, <laughs> podcast. That'll be, yes. isn't that ex riveting excitement? Yes. 111 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> It's wonderful. That's right. Yeah. A, whole, a whole hour on that. Yeah. yeah this and is I can give you some German you know, data and information and DCs <laughs> on that because I've read through a bunch of them. It's pretty fun. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So the mash tun mixture does that. And then we have a lotter ton with rakes and plows. So we can do those heavier wheat-based beers and not get it plugged up. Lotter ton and stuck mash, stuck lotter, whatever you want to call it. Right. And then we have a kettle slash whirlpool. So it's set up so I can mash in, transfer the lotter ton, run to the kettle, mash in, transfer a lot of time. If the kettle's still busy, I can run back to the mash tank because it's steam jacketed and it can heat it up. So it's a pre-run tank too. Mm -hmm. And I can bring that word up to a boil or get it close and then transfer it to the kettle, finish it off. So it's as production as we can get right now. You've right? worked on so many different systems. This was probably, uh, you probably had a big advantage over many people who are just starting a brewery uh, who, who have, haven't had that kind of experience. Um, if you were talking to another brewer, would you give them any advice about what kind of brewery setup they should go for? I'd ask them what they wanted to brew, and then I'd base it around that. So if it was just like standard American ales, it would be I a different would, answer? I would not get them a mash mixer for that, yeah. no. Okay. No, mash mixers are better for, even for American beers, if you want to get better extract, 
by having an agitator that turns the mash and it really helps to get a lot more stuff in solution. It pulls more starch out, turns it back into sugars. You can get a better extract in a lot of time. You can go up like 2%. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe up to 3% depending <laughs> on the system. So 2-3% on a Widmer size system, which is right. 270, 280 knockout. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. If it's a three-barrel system, three-and-a-half-barrel system, it's not that much. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of the brewer fiddling around, just not getting his stuff done, you know, taking some time, doing his readings, that's going to not, that's going to wipe out all savings in that yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah. So I would, if it was just a making American-style beers without any kind of step stuff, yeah, I would skip it. Yeah. But if you're looking at production, if you're looking at any kind of German or Belgian beer styles that require those steps, you've kind of got to get a mash mixer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so tell me about... Uh, I'm thinking about scaling up. Obviously, you have ambitions to start uh, doing more production stuff and getting it out the door. Uh, so, uh, tell me about sort of the the process of making a name for yourself, gaining that momentum, finding a distributor, and finding a market outside the brew pub. Yeah, the best thing to do is just stay in the brewery all day and not talk to anybody. Just <laughs> <laughs> people will come to me if yeah. they really want to talk to me. Cause I'm well, that's there. another good question, which yeah. is that these days, especially in craft brewing, the brew master is kind of the PR guy as well. So Right. And that's what, uh, Pints is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. So Pints was the first brewery in my, I've almost been brewing, I started in 97, so it's almost been 20 years I've been professionally brewing. First brewery I ever worked out where I had 100% control of what I wanted to make. Right. And it was strange and wonderful and scary all at the same time. It's like, it, I can't blame the flagship for not doing well. It's, it's my flagship. <laughs> right. Right. I did it wrong or somebody else. I can't say, well, I don't like this beer, but oh, yeah. Yeah, it's my beer. Right. So that changed things a little bit, but then it became the situation where, yes, it partly was me. I was the guy who was out there on the street selling beer. I was delivering beer. I was doing all the TTP paperwork and the OLCC, which is our state taxes for, for alcohol. Mm-hmm. Doing all that paperwork, ordering, filling, cleaning, brewing, transferring. My little Toyota Corolla just has almost died from kegs <laughs> in it. Right and left. I carried hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kegs in that little little beast that just keeps on trucking. So, yeah. So no promotional up. consideration no, for Toyota. Thank you, Toyota. <laughs> We have a GMC van now, which can hold 26 full kegs of beer, which I like nice. a lot better. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. GMC. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so the brewery becomes the point of focus. Mm-hmm. And I'd be out for tastings. I would do everything I possibly could to grow our sales. And we went from, I think we did 13 barrels the first month I was there. Mm-hmm which to anybody is a small amount. Right, yeah. It's a three-and-a-half-barrel system, so it's not nothing on that system, but it's a small amount. We did over 100 barrels this last summer nice. on the same system. So within a couple of years, we grew significantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was due to me busting my hump, getting stuff out there and having people hear about our beer and try our beer and get it the good beer bars. Yeah. Once you get into some nice places like Bailey's Tap Room, right. there's a little push for those guys. Those guys are great. That's one of the first places our beer was at. And then people started calling us for the beer because they had the double at Bailey's Tap Room and loved it. Yeah. And then we got into a whole bunch of other spots. I won't name them all, but there's right, a lot right. of really good beer bars in Portland. And we start hitting those. They start supporting you and your name gets out there and, and you, you get some good press. So there's a lot of new breweries in town. There's also a lot of new beer bars and a lot of places that are adding taps and craft taps. But what's the what's the uh, equilibrium there? Is it is it getting harder and harder to find taps, uh, to find uh, shelf space? And well, when we was at Pines, it was we were all 100% self distribution. Mm-hmm. So as of a year ago, January 2015, we we started working with another distributor with Pines. 
and he's done he's picked up some stuff and and been busy with that mm -hmm. so he's been searching for those tap situations that i'm no longer looking for because right. we're taking care of some of the grandfather accounts or the things that i could walk down the street with a hand truck and drop kicks off to right. that right. kind of stuff that right. i can easily service but he's got everything else pretty much mm -hmm. and then here we signed on with a distributor can i say the name sure right? yeah so Melitas beverage uh we've been working with them since 2011 as well Okay. And really planning long term with them to get this thing up and running. I didn't drop any dirty words there. This this blank blank thing. <laughs> this wonderful <laughs> project that's taken five years to get going, yeah. four and a half or something. Yeah. Uh, so they've been part of the whole process, and and they've been great to work with. And we they picked up their first round of beer last two weeks ago, and so finding tap panels. That's currently what they're doing for us at yeah. some point we'll have a dedicated staff member that will go out there and, and fight the battle on the streets and, mm -hmm. right but since we just started up we're doing baby steps and going forward so we're starting draft only we'll have some bottles or probably do bottles first 22s mm -hmm. and hopefully transition to 12s as soon as possible for six packs yeah we have great graphics great logos all that kind of stuff's ready to go we just need to get the beer on the street people get to know us right and when it's time to package and, and send it out the door you you uh, contract with a mobile bottling bottler? That's one option is mm. to start with mobile. Uh -huh. um, other option is to have an investor spend some more money on a, on a bottling line and see if it works out for all three breweries somehow. Ah, I see. Uh -huh. yeah. So that's a possibility as well. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I think the odds are leaning towards mobile to begin with, though. Yeah. yeah. We'll right. see. Okay. In Portland, I know a lot of our listeners, uh, when you go to like a Bailey's, they don't have any dedicated taps for any brewery. No. Uh, and that's becoming more and more typical. You know, mm -hmm. the, it used to be back in the day, back when you first started, that there would be two or three taps always dedicated, probably Widmer Hefeweizen, and probably Full, Full Sail Amber. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bridgeport, IPA. Yeah, there was a, something else. a few standards. And uh, now it all floats. And so as a... Do you need to run? No, no, okay. No. Uh, it all kind of floats around there. So is that, you know, it, in the honeymoon period, it's probably great because, our, you know, everybody wants new, 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 and you're new. Um, but is it more of a challenge to build brand loyalty when there's no dedicated taps and people never know where to find your stuff? Yes. Kurt Widmer, I think it was Kurt or Rob, I think it was Kurt, called it brewer drinking, beer drinker ADD. <laughs> but they're just bouncing all over the place and yep. what is cool what's new and mm -hmm. yeah. flagships have been suffering excuse me um, because of that but they've done recently done a pretty good big push and their hay is selling well again which is yeah. good yeah um, I look down at, at the situation in Albuquerque where you basically I don't know how to say this very well you basically buy your way into a tap mm. take the ownership of that tap you clean the tap, you service the tap, you huh. potentially provide the hardware for the tap, not wow. just the handle, but you might build out the entire tap system. Wow. So different, very different laws down there than there are in Oregon. 90% um, of the time I appreciate the Oregon laws more because mm -hmm. it puts more, it gives more control to the brewer not to be taken advantage of. Right. So in Oregon, for the listener, in Oregon, if I bring a keg to a, a bar or restaurant, they have to pay me immediately. There are no credit terms. There's, it has to be paid immediately. Um, we can self-distribute up to, I think, 7,500 barrels now. That's right. Without having to get an extra license for that. So that 
that has really helped the Oregon brewing scene grow so quickly and so well is because the, the cash-strapped small brewer who's out there hustling the street is going to get his cash in hand, he's going to get a decent price for his kegs, and he's going to be able to not have to go clean somebody's lines for them. The bartenders, we are responsible for cleaning our restaurants' tap lines, not right. some brewer who comes in, not right. a distributor who has to do that. So the margins are slightly higher here than they are down in New Mexico. And I really appreciate uh, the brewery side that there's more control on the brewery side. That said, it is a great market, and Albuquerque has a lot of really cool breweries going on down there. It's just harder down there to break into that block right. and say, we're the new brewery in town. We're in Portland. That beer would be all over the place. Right. And down there, it's like, oh, yeah, but we got these other taps. We can't <laughs> give up to you because <laughs> right. these guys are washing the taps and yeah, cleaning don't. the lines and the other stuff. So it's, it's a different game. Interesting. You just got to get used to it in each market and yeah. and go from it. So Portland is great about that. And you know, Portland is the hub. Bend is big as well as far as what's going on in the Oregon scene. Uh, I think we're getting close. Do you have a, I have a, yeah, one I just, other question? And maybe, go ahead. You ask your question. I have a wrap-up. Yeah. Uh, when you're doing a brew pub, especially it's a little bit different than Pints because you don't really have a local neighborhood there. It's in a kind of a funny place. Yeah. Here you have, you're surrounded by, by residential. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the way this, this, this brewery will succeed is if you appeal to local folks. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of challenge... You know, you're not. You, you didn't grow up in Lens. So you don't know what this is like. Uh, is there a Chad's or like a learning curve to try to figure out how to appeal to the local neighborhood? And well, the first place that Chad lived in Portland was Lens. Oh, really? So Chad actually knows Lens pretty well. Okay. I live in St. John's, which is similar demographically, different location, but similar economics and. Stuff it's about is, as far away and still be in Portland as you can be. Yes. It's like the it's like <laughs> this is Oregon, that's Florida. Yeah, it's pretty much that way. <laughs> and the interstate is getting really congested out here because we have a lot of lot of lot of cars on the road. Yeah. So getting home at a rush hour time is brutal. <laughs> so I ended up coming in at five forty five this morning and I'll probably uh, get home around eight or nine tonight. So yeah. I'll brewing miss all, is I'll glamorous. Miss all the bad. Oh, it is, it's awesome. <laughs> 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 Well, at least to get some stuff done today, which is good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I just have the, the sort of the, the boilerplate blanket question, which is uh, for anyone out there considering starting a, uh, a brewery or a brew pub, do you have any kind of sage words of wisdom, advice, things, things you wish you'd known before you started? Uh, that's a couple of different questions. <laughs> things I would have, before I started... Um, typically, I heard a lot that it's going to take twice as long, cost twice as much. Right. And I think that's an understatement. <laughs> in our particular situation, wow. it was an understatement. It took us probably five times, ten times as long, and probably three or four times as much wow. as we wow. anticipated. So you can put your stuff together, and then just things just take, take whatever it happens, it happens. So if you can't find a building, you can't find a building. You can yep. see a hundred different spaces and put your business plan for rearrange it for each spot and give it to the owners and if the owner's like nah 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 I don't want to I don't want to do that I don't go through the hassle of putting a trench drain in my building right I don't want to upgrade the electrical I don't want to do this I want to change the gas I don't want to do that stuff I don't care if it's the next Anheuser-Busch I don't want to do that right so that's hard um the I would also say don't go into the business because somebody thinks your homebrew is great. Right. Your homebrew may be better than my beer, and I won't be offended by that. But if you can't brew 
professionally, you're going to spend a lot of time and money and it may completely fall apart on you. Yeah. Because you don't know what's going on. You haven't spent the day to day. So do an internship. Somehow find a way to get accredited so that you know that when you go out there and you're doing these long days, that the beer that comes out the door is the same beer every time. And it's, you know, there are some breweries that try and do the, you know, the, the natural one-off stuff and they're, they're cool and they're wonderful and I respect them, but most breweries are trying to make the beer taste the same every time so that their customers are happy right? and they know what they're getting. Right. So those would be kind of two things. Yeah. And I, and I'm sorry, I had thought of one final question, but uh, for aspiring brewers, do you recommend going to school or is it most, do you, uh, the book learning, the, the in-school learning versus the uh, vocational training that you get on it? If you can combine them both, that's perfect. Right. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, Germany has built around vocational training, so there's the guild system still. Yeah. So you start as a brewer, you get your brewers, not like a brewer's permit, but a, you get your brewers. Um, trying to get a word for that. And it's like high school level or like a bachelor's level? It's, no, it's like high school level. Yeah. So it's based, so they have three different, they're, they're, it's Germany, so yeah. it's slightly, it's simple <laughs> but it's complex at the yeah. same time. You have three three directions you can go and it starts somewhere around, I think it's like fourth or fifth grade. They start splitting the kids up to like vocational training. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like um, training for, if you want to become a banker or something like that. It's not quite. Right academic and then there's the academic level so you can go like university so there's a track that goes to university there's a track that does more middle management kind of things and then there's the vocational training so it splits them off at a young age for good or bad that's the way it works so the brewers who go through the vocational training they go and they work in a brewery like three days a week they go to training for two days a week so they have school and work when they're done they have the brewer certificate if you want to call it that at that point they can work in a brewery up until 2004 three or four, I think 2004, they mm-hmm. could not open their own brewery right. because mm-hmm. they were not a Brauermeister. Right. When you have that Brauermeister on your title, then you can do other things. <laughs> you can always do that as a Brauer. <laughs> <laughs> so the poor Brauer was not able to open a brew pub. Around 2004, that changed so that anybody basically could open a brew pub, which freaked all the masters out. I bet it did. I, I think things have been fine over there. Yeah. Um, with a the brew master's degree, then you can... That's additional training, university-style training, and then you can go and open breweries. You can run departments like the QA department or the bottling or the kegging department or the brew house. Right. Yeah. So, and that's the that's when you go to Weinstaufen yeah. or, or the, VLBA. Or the VLBA. I think Domans has a couple. There's yeah. a couple of places that do that. Yeah. In the U.S., it's a little different. My my brother, who's since left the industry, but he he did the brewing program at uh, UC Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what strikes me about his training is that it was. A lot of chemistry mm-hmm. um, and so someone like him might uh, I'm an economist and I always explain the difference between business and economics to undergraduates as business is sort of uh, uh, what, uh, what ha- happens how to do things and the economics is why it works right mm-hmm. so um, uh, and so I sort of have that impression about uh, brewers who have that kind of training there's a lot of stuff you can do vocationally you just kind of learn what you're supposed to do but maybe not the why yeah the why is very important yeah. So the, the course that I took, the Baumeister course I took at the VLB, was built for brewers who had the brewing certificate, mm-hmm. and they wanted to then go to school and very quickly, instead of a two-and-a-half, three-year program, do a right. 10-month intense program where we did 40-hour-a-week coursework and mm-hmm. labs. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to get them through one year, get back to their brewery, and be the brewmaster for one of these department divisions. Right. So I did not do the brewer 
pre-programmed, and mm-hmm. that's why can he check gravities was my test. <laughs> yeah. saying, I could be a brewer. It's like, yeah, he can check gravities. Great. Right. So I skipped all that pre-stuff and got my brewmaster degree. So I did the training. I homebrewed, but I right. did an internship, but not a lot. Mm. I did my studies before my hands-on part. So when I came, I worked in Bavaria for a little bit, and came back to the States. At Full Sail was really my first really, truly hands-on brewing experience. Gotcha. And so that's like when you really get your sweaty feet in your boots yeah right yeah and, well know. we should taste some beer yeah i'm we're, getting thirsty uh we want to have you walk us through some of your beers and, and we're going to talk about uh berliner weisse and brettanomyces for sure and maybe about hellas and the north north german uh pilsner yes so right. but you need to go so let's you need to attend to the the brewery to switch. So go switch some tanks and get so some beer and then we'll, we'll be back we'll be we'll resume in a moment and we are back with Alan Taylor and three beers in front of us. We're going to taste these beers now. Uh, so we have, are we going to start with the Hellas then? Yes. Which is called Lentz Lager. So if people come and they want this beer, you look for the Lentz Lager. Uh, Hellas beer is a pale lager from Bavaria. And what's, what, people want to know the difference between a Hellas and a Pilsner. How would you distinguish these? To describe that, you kind of want to start with Pilsner first. Yeah. But I put them in order of Hellas on upwards. Right. The Hellas is kind of a reaction to Pilsner beers, Mm -hmm. to these light-colored beers that came across from the Czech Republic, which was part of the Habsburg Empire at that point in time, so Austro-Hungarian Empire. And they became popular. And there's a number of reasons for that, so I'll just kind of dive into the Pilsner talk. Sure. Um, I, I have kind of a theory that Pilsners became popular because of a number of things. One is, this was the point in time, a very important point, is it was the point in time when glassware became affordable for people. So you went away from earthen mugs or pewter mugs or, mm-hmm. or solid, thick, porcelain kind of drinking vessels to glass right. to crystal, and you could actually mm-hmm. see what was in it. So instead of having some nasty, murky, <laughs> flocculated out protein yeast mess on the bottom of a brown lager or a brown ale, you could see this brilliantly golden, crystal clear beer. So glassware, refrigeration obviously was becoming very important in that period of time. So you can make these lagers year round so you don't have to deal with any kind of issues of fluctuation in temperature. Mm-hmm. Mass production is a lot easier when you can control temperature. Um, Pale malting. Pale malting, yes. So moving away from smoked kiln malts to indirectly fired malts, so you have a cooler temperature, so you're not making it as dark, you're not getting the melanoidins and the Maillard reactions happening, and that gives you a lighter colored malt as well. Take those all together, and you've got, and obviously the water source was very low, low parts per million, very low alkalinity in the water, so you could also brew a light colored beer finally. Right. Going from Munich with high bicarbonate amounts, that would raise the pH of the mash, so to counter that, you have dark malts. Dark malts lower with the acidity in the malts, so you hit your five, three to five, six range. And when you hit that range pretty well, then you get a good extract out of the beer. Mm-hmm. So by trial and error, which is what all brewers did for centuries and centuries and millennia, is to find out what works. And so what worked in Pilsen, they first tried to brew some brown lagers, brown ales over there, and they didn't work very well because the water was too too soft, so the beers were too, too acidic. Right. And they found out this lighter colored malt worked better. So and it comes to Bavaria, moving from the Czech, I keep saying Czech Republic, from the Habsburg Empire to the Bavarian duchy. I don't know what they were at that point in time. Yeah. He was a king. <coughs> yeah, there was, he was might have been a king. Though, Kunich, huh? Yeah, he was a king at that yeah, point. Yeah. yeah, he was a kingdom, kingdom mm-hmm. of Bavaria. 
Um, so they start seeing this beer which comes in and starts to fight their dominant brown or brown beers in the Munich area. The Dunkless, Dunkless is a wonderful beer. It makes sense thinking about water chemistry and, and killing. And um, the Hellas was born. So the Bavarians also brew Pilsners occasionally, but they're not really common down there. When I was in Nesselwang, which is really close to Füssen, which is where Neuschwanstein is, for those who've seen the castle, crazy Ludwig's castle, um, they made a Pilsner, but it was kind of weird to have a Pilsner. Most people did a Gold and a Helles and Weizenbier, Dunkle, stuff like that, or the beer styles they had. Mm-hmm. So to counteract that, they didn't like the bitterness and the slightly higher alcohol of the, the Czech pills, so right. they started making their own Helles, which is their own interpretation. Mm-hmm. As you go from Bavaria northward, you head a little bit towards middle, Europe, middle Germany, you get two beers that become less sweet and soft and more hop-toned. As you keep going north, 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 you get two beers that are very dry and very aggressively hopped. Mm-hmm. So the Northern German Pilsner, which is the second beer we're going to taste, has that drier note, has that more intense hop bitterness. It's like 40, 42 bad BUs versus 20, 18, right. which the hell is a really low BUs. Um, so it's a completely different animal, but they look almost identical. I think the Pilsner's a little bit lighter in color here than the Hellas, but not by much. They're both straw golden. Yeah, they're beautiful beers. Do you use the same malt in the two? We use, so the Hellas is 100% Pilsner malt. Okay. It's German malt, and then we bittered with German Magnum and finished with Hersburger, also German. <clears throat> That's then, like a classic recipe for a Hellas? Yeah, I mean, the Hellas, it's, it's cookie cutter. It's yeah. 100% Pilsner <laughs> malt, boil it for an hour and a half do your step mash, do all these good things to it, and then bitter with German, good German hops. And mm-hmm. It's the same yeast strain as the one I brought back from Germany from my VLB days, so it's the lager strain, same one I had. And Is it difficult to get good, good, good German hops? No. No? No, there's a number of suppliers, especially in the Northwest, since we have so many hop houses in the area mm-hmm. that they have, a lot of them partnered with German hop houses or English hop houses, and they all work together and supply, like Steiner, yep. um, Haas, J.H. Haas, those, those names are all German names. So your Hellas has a really rich, uh, Let's try it. <clears throat> bready kind of, the malts are really warm. The, I don't know what it is about Pilsner malt, but when it's put in a, a beer like this, it tastes like warm bread. It seems like warmth, even though it's a cold, crisp beer, but it, right. it reminds me of warmth. I, I always pick up bread on that, too. Yeah. Like a really nicely baked loaf of bread that's mm-hmm. fresh and inviting. It feels like home on the hearth, and you just can drink it, and it's frequently I almost feel like it's almost too much body, but then it's not too much body. You know, it's just there's a lot of flavor for being so simple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's the alcohol content? It's four seven to four nine. Yeah. So very sessionable. Yeah. As this all German beers are, ninety five point nine 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 percent of them. Yeah. Most people when they encounter you call it once lager, which I think is smart because Hellas just confuses people. Because you've got Hellas and you've got Pilsners, and people kind of don't even know what Pilsners are. There's just German Pilsner and the Czech Pilsner. The, add Hellas and then it becomes confusing. But well, our this is like is actually calling it a Hellas. Okay. So it's a Hellas Lager because of the fact that they think that Hellas might make more sense to be lower star and get it coming around to that. Mm. So I agree yeah. to your point. I agree to their point. I'm kind of in the middle of that. I think they'll be able to. People who know what a Hellas is can try it and see Hellas Lager. They know it's a Lager, so if they like lagers, they might try it anyway. My dad. <clears throat> who never really came around to craft beer or any kind of strong beer. If I gave him this beer, he would be like, that's beer. I can drink that. You know, if he came here, he would be, he would find this recognizable. Mm-hmm. And I think he's heard the word lager, so he might recognize that. But, um, 
there's a kind of a trend in America right now back to simple, uncomplicated, flavorful lagers that were for so long considered the yeah, that, yeah, they had the, the, the scarlet letter of uh, mass market on them. Mm-hmm. Now people are coming back around. We're fi- starting finally to have wonderful lagers. And this is, I think, it's cool that it's kind of the Lentz lager. It seems like it's sort of the one of the house beers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very simple, sessionable. It's the kind of thing that in Bavaria you'd drink uh, maybe... Two or three liters. Yeah, two or, I was <laughs> going to say, how, uh, we, we, we say it honestly or like... Uh, more demure, but you, yeah, you sit and you drink. You drink these things; they're made for drinking. So, for the uninitiated like me, how is it that you achieve such a sort of robust mouthfeel to the beer and a really um, relatively full body for the alcohol content? I mean, well, part of it's the malt itself. So it's it's. If you ask what a beer style comes from, it comes from the raw ingredients that were available to that place, the water source, to mm-hmm. people who made it. So this is German malt, which was made for these kind of beer styles. Mm-hmm. So that's the first step. Uh, the second step is having a mash mixer is very helpful so you can hit the different temperatures. You can right. hit a protein rest if you need to. You can hit a beta amylase, an alpha amylase. You can hit the middle rest in between. You can then mash off and hit a you know, 72C, or like one, sorry, 78C, which is like 172 mm-hmm. Fahrenheit. It's kind of typical mash off temperature. So you can lock in your your um, body thinness. Then you can also lock in your alcohol content by what you do in the mash time. Yeah. A mash out is when you uh, raise the temperature high enough so that it kills off the enzymes in the, right. the DNH process. DNHs the enzymes. Some of them can survive that temperature, but it reduces them basically to inconsequential. And then you've also lowered the viscosity of the, the mash because you've raised the temperature, so the lauder ton works better. Mm-hmm. It's another reason why mash mixtures are better, because you send a hot mash to the lauder ton, and then you're just trying to strip out the sugars from that point. Yeah. Many Germans will say that you need to uh, use decoction mashing to build melanoidins. Is that something? You, what do you, how do you feel about that? Having worked in Germany where they don't do that anymore. Right, yeah. Less than 99.99% of the breweries, they don't do that anymore. Right. So... Trollers beware. Yeah, Patrick and I did a, a thing on Pilsners, and we tasted Czech Pilsners and German Pilsners, mm-hmm. and the body difference. Because in Czech, you have to, in order for it to be called lager, you have to be, you have to decoct it, and you can mm-hmm. really tell it's actually quite different. Um, well, the malts are also different. They are different. They're totally different. But the um, the the preference for very uh, cakey mouthfeel mm-hmm. in the Czech beers is, is clear and mm-hmm. this is much more kind of refined. And right and this is a 90 minute boil so you get a little bit of more body just from concentrating it. Now I have a steam system mm-hmm. so I'm not going to create a lot of color that way mm-hmm. yeah. but I'm imparting what was it 240 degree something like that don't quote me for sure but it's, it's not 2000 degrees of it it's not a direct flame where it's right. really starting to cause a lot of discoloration to the word. Right. Discoloration sounds negative but if you're looking for a pillow or for a light colored beer, you yeah. don't want hot, hot temperature. You want it to boil. You want your six percent, eight percent per hour, but you don't want it to get super foxy, as the Germans call it. <laughs> the, the red color, that red orange that you can get from boiling through a copper. We gotta start using that foxy. The foxy, yeah. Foxy. And you. What went through my head? And how do you amend the water, or do you? 
Um, I so all my beer is since we have 13 parts per million typically in our Portland water sources, it's mm -hmm. just rainwater. Yeah, I add salts to all the beers. Mm -hmm. So typically calcium chloride, calcium sulfate, magnesium sulfate, calcium. Excuse me. We go back and start again. I'm, I'm thinking visually through my salts. Right. So I have <laughs> calcium chloride, calcium sulfate, magnesium sulfate, sodium chloride, and and sodium bicarbonate. Those uh -huh. are the five salts I work with as my palate. Right. So my target is to closely replicate the water sources of the places I'm brewing at, mm -hmm. which is very easy since we're starting with a clean palate. Right. Like I said, 13 parts per million is almost nothing in it. Very soft water here. And then I build up my, I have targets. I want to be about 50 parts per million of calcium because that helps with a number of things, yeast health, uh, oxalate removal, a bunch of different things that happen in the mash tun and in the kettle from mm -hmm. having enough, uh, and in the fermentation from having enough calcium. Magnesium, I want to boost a little bit because ours is really low here. It also is good for yeast growth and metabolism. Um, sulfate chloride ratios are what I try and work with. Palmer has a really good little tool that he put together and I kind of took that, reworked it and dropped it into my own little hmm. Excel sheet that I work with on my, on my recipes hmm. to go from super overly bitter to overly sweet, you know, overly malty, that kind of category. And you take that and you kind of work with that. And if you want to have a Hellas, well, it's not overly bitter, so it's more malt toned. If you want the Pilsner, it's supposed to be more bitter, so it's more towards the sulfate versus the chloride. And then to balance out the pH, the last little part is, and I'll fiddle around with my bicarbonate amount to make sure that I hit my targets from the mash tun and the kettle. Right. So let's let's use that as an opportunity That's to segue. Yeah, to exactly to go to this uh, beer. I remember long ago, you you and I were talking, and you said that I asked you what kind of beer you like, and you said I like Yever. It's a north. Uh, Northern Germany mm -hmm. uh, Pilsner, and, it's, and you called it. It has, it has, I can't remember the word you used. It was kind of what we would normally consider a negative connotation. You said something like a harsh bitterness, or a biting bitterness, or yeah. grating, or something like that. Um, not normally what people would consider it's praiseworthy. Not the, yeah, not what the uh, the test groups want to hear. They want to hear a harsh, aggressive. So but, is that what you're saying? But in that, Germany, that's what Yever is like yeah. compared to all these soft, soft Pilsner beers that are very light and very sessionable and very drinkable. Yever is a manly man's beer. And is that <laughs> what you're shooting for here? Or manly women or <laughs> womenly men or whatever it is up there in northern <laughs> Germany. They are uh, able to drink these rougher, edgier beers. Yeah. Definitely higher bitterness level. Flensburg is another really good one. Flensburg always has more of a nutty malt note to me than Yever. Yever tends to be a little bit cleaner. Mm. Um, so it has that edgier bitterness. It's a little bit drier. It finishes, I will, I'll use the word, a little bit danker than mm -hmm. the Hellas would ever finish. Right. So actually threw some Magnum hops in the Whirlpool on this as well to kind of oh. dirty up the aroma and flavor. That's not, a, that's not a typical German approach, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That seems but they little, have other little America they slipping have, in there. Yeah. I've not just brewed in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this has, to me, it's um, there's less breadiness and the mouth feels a little it's a little thinner, but it's uh, a bit sharper and yeah more bitter. It's really one of my faves. Yeah, we came here to do this podcast last week, and Alan was busy, so we Patrick and I sat down and had a beer, and I had this, and it was the first time I'd had it. Uh, I didn't even know you guys were here. Yeah, I thought you called it off and no. Off. Well, we we. <laughs> It was, I was en, en route. Oh, so okay. we kind of had to, so I just decided to come here. And then when okay. we were at a brewery, so we were have a beer. Right. And um, uh, the first impression of this beer is that it's pretty aggressive on the, on the palate. The, mm -hmm. the, the bitterness seems fairly 
uh, it's got quite a blade. But when you drink a whole pint, and it lingers. It it actually the the impression is that it smooths out. I could have I could have easily had two or three pints of this beer. I don't know what your idea yeah, about that is. The, whenever I'm in Germany, I haven't had Yeva for a while. Berlin has a lot of restaurants that have Yeva, which is nice because I could always get it when I live there. Um, it always seemed wow, that's edgy. Mm-hmm. And then you had a couple more sips, and it you just got used to it. And it's just it's kind of and I thought for the Northwest palate. People who like hoppy bitter beers, mm-hmm. this would be a really nice introduction to a special German Pilsner style. Yeah, because it has that kind of that mm. going on. <laughs> yeah. like, oh yeah, there's hops in there. Yeah, there are. Okay, yeah. there's a little bitterness in there. So if you like IPAs and you want to try lagers, it's a nice crossover kind of thing. Where the Hellas might be too soft for some people. Mm-hmm. So people may still associate Hellas with PBR and you know Schlitz and all these old beer styles, which is right. what. They basically were adjunct Hellas beer right, styles. Right. But the Pilsner, in that sense, is not what PBR is. It's not what the other beer styles are. So it's definitely a step away from that that beer. Hmm. Yeah. There's uh, there's definitely a, a, a bitter twang to this. Um, that's quite different than the, the Czech Pilsners that we tasted, where it's really featuring, to me, it was the rustic malts that really kind of shine through. Yeah, and Czech builders can be as bitter as this, but sure. with that backbone of sweetness and, and with the Astle and, and Pilsner Oakville in particular, it right. really muddies the water up so you don't pick up how yeah. sharp the bitterness is. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Everything is just kind of increased. The malt and the, malt and the hops are both yeah. increased simultaneously. Which is why we can drink our IPAs with 70 BUs. Right. Or 75 BUs and not just scrape our tongues off and right. freak out about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we should move to the piece de resistance here. Uh, the native beer from the place you learned how to brew. Um, this this style of beer is is a, a more or less obsolete, or it became all nearly obsolete in in its own country. Right? There were just a couple it, of breweries left. It and, still is nearly obsolete. Yeah. yeah. Uh, everybody uh, who knows this beer knows its characteristic tartness which seems like a lactic tartness and many people who know how to make it uh, know that that comes from lactobacillus you should um, however mention this is Berliner Visa yeah it's our Visa, sorry, sorry. Berliner Visa uh, where we're, we're about to go to but you uh, told me for the first time that there is the, the typical flavor of Berliner Visa should have brandomyces so talk about what Talk about how that's used and what it contributes and what, sure. what people should look for. So when I was in Berlin in that 96 through 99, some of that time range, when I was studying middle high German and brewing science and working a little bit, I lived in Berlin for a while and I just loved Berlin Weisse. When I first went to Berlin, the very first time, like 1990, I tried and I hated it. It was disgusting. <laughs> it was just the grossest thing ever with the, the Woodruff in it. Right. I was back in Salem, Oregon, at the local homebrew shop. I don't know if they're still around homebrew heaven. And the owner there said, oh, you got to go back and try it again. you got to try it again. Do it again. Just try it again. Okay. So I went back again. I tried it without the syrup. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Yeah. It's a very complex beer for being such a low alcohol beer. <clears throat> so I went back and tried it and tried it. And I found out that my three, three liter little tiny stubby beers were great. So if I go for a run and come home, shower, drink a glass of water, and then just drink my lemonade slash banana ice it's just this beautiful tartness grapefruit notes effervescent it's a wonderful wonderful beer great thirst quencher really exciting to drink 
drink it for breakfast instead of grapefruit juice. My father-in-law looked at me and my other fellow brewers and just like, what's wrong with these people? It's advice over breakfast. It's only 2.8, 2 2.5%. It's not that strong. Right. So I really fell in love with the beer style. And as I was leaving Germany to come back to the States, I thought that was the right time to dive deep and find out as much as I possibly could. So I spoke with the microbiology professor from the VLB, who was also a big Benito Weisser fan, and he had been working on the bread strains that he had drawn from a number of the breweries. The director of the VLB at the time had written his PhD thesis on the aroma build, the aroma building, and blah blah ester building von Berliner Weisse. The aroma and ester creation in Berliner Weisse beers. So he looked at Kindle and Schulzeis and all the small breweries, the Hochschulbrauerei, which was the VLB's you know, university brewery that was still active at that time. And he had compared those, he compared them to Fuerza, Nambique, and all those different beer styles and talked about how they're similar. It's a really interesting thesis. Mm. So if you're really good at reading German, go to the VLB. <laughs> <laughs> ask for the uh, Metno's uh, dissertation, PhD yeah. dissertation, and read through it because it's pretty. Cool. Yeah, we'll uh, I'll put that right chapter. on the next the next yeah, to yeah. do. Yeah, so he has a chapter on on Quetnamutsis. So he talks about that. So he talks about how it really just boils down to Kindle created theirs without Brettanomyces. So it's a lactobacillus mm -hmm. stream of wort and then a saccharomyces stream of wort. They do their thing, they meet up, and they're done. So to me, that's like a Kolsch with a little bit of lactic acid thrown mm -hmm. in. It's very simple, clean, very, for me, unexciting, but it's just tart. Right, a simple, ale. and it's just... A tart ale. And the, and the tartness is just one note. There's absolutely no exactly. complexity. It's a ringing, clear note, but there's... It's just a yeah, exactly. That's all it is. <laughs> so you get to Schulteis, which is a mixed blend of Saccharomyces, Lactobacillus, and Retinomyces. And that thing is a symphony. There's just stuff going on everywhere. You drink it, you get something one sip, and it finishes with another flavor. It has this nice little straw hay note, and then it has this wonderful little bright, refreshing grapefruit aromatic. And it's all happening in a 7.5 Play-Doh beer. So for homebrewers, that is 28.30, I think. Approximately. I think it's 10.30, starting gravity. So it would be 10.32, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, you can get a lot, of, a lot of punch out of a little beer. So what we did is I brought a number of that I found at the VLB. Don't tell them I did that. <laughs> I found a bunch of bottles there. Fortunately, this is just between us. Yeah, this is between us and our American friends. <laughs> And I found some bottles of the VLB way in one of those. They had this, like this big, big like institute with all these different old buildings, all from like the 18, 19th centuries, like wow. old stuff. There, so you cruising around finding these cool things. I found some. They had some whiskey that I found back there. <laughs> oh, wow. A bunch of like labels and bottle caps <laughs> and stuff that I love to collect. And then I found these beer bottles and it said Berliner Weiss on it. It's like, oh man, I gotta see what that is. So I brought some home. Again, don't tell the VLB. And I took them to, to Yees and we cracked them open, tasted them, and they pulled all the, the bugs out. Ah. And we did that with Schulteis beer, too. Mm -hmm. So all of that stuff I banked up there at, at Y-East, and that's what I put in this beer. So this starts with the lactobacillus mm. that I brought back from a Schulteis bottle, and I have a tank at Pines that is heatable, so we have hot water tubes wrapped around it, so we mm -hmm. can send hot water to it to keep it to 120 degrees or so and ferment it out with a lactobacillus, get it to the pH and tartness factor that I want, yep. and it's all sensory. It's, there's, you know, I can measure pH, but I can't 
I have to taste it to see, you know, okay. is it the flavor I want? Yeah. And if it doesn't get to that point, I give it another day or two or three or four or five until it's ready. And then at that point, we'll cool the tank down. I'll harvest off a bunch of fresh lactobacilli out of the bottom of the tank, pitch in Saccharomyces, Brettanomyces, and let those uh-huh. guys take over. So the bread has something to work with. Yeah. If you just throw bread in straight, it's going to create a different flavor profile than if you have some acids. So the, the lactobacillus I have creates lactic and... Um, um, come on, brain. What's the one that's balsamic vinegar? What's oh, acetic acid? Oh, yeah. So it has lactic and acetic acid. It creates both of those. Bretonomyces will also create acetic acid to some extent. Oh, yeah, right, so that's right. So two of those together, so it's creating esters from acetic and from lactic acid. So you have these different aromas coming out of it, which you just don't have in the Kindle because it's, there's nothing to change those acids and esters. So the, 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 the Bretonomyces is taking the acids and and from the lactobacillus and, and creating esters out of yes. those acids. Yeah, it's taking that's the this process that's happening. So this is alcohol and it's creating esters. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Saccharomyces will not do it the same way that Bretonomyces will. So yeah. you end up with a completely different profile by having the Bretonomyces present. And Bretonomyces won't do it the same way if it doesn't have acids present. Yes. If it's just got wort, it's not going to yes. do the same stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's why that mixed culture is so important. Because when people taste a beer like this, and this one has bread in it, yes. but uh, if you gave this to a you know, a, a person who's familiar with what wi- American wild ales are and what the characteristic of bread is, they would not ever detect the presence of, of bread because it doesn't have that bready quality that they look for. But um, but I can but pick from, it up. But from your side, it has, it has <laughs> you know. other fingerprints that it leaves behind. Yeah. So I pick up the straw, I pick up the hay, I pick up the light, dusty notes to it. This, there's no fecal, there's no Mm-mm. nasty skunk, there's not any cherry, I mean, there's, there's no blanket part, but it right. does have that light, dusty hay note, which I, is very appropriate for the style, mm-hmm. I think is great in it. It's just an amazingly... Uh, I can't. So, for the for the folks out there, if you try this and you can't taste what Alan's saying, don't feel bad. I can't I can't identify the, the dusty hay note here. Um, it definitely is not this, the... the that ringing single note it's that's got a lot of complexity yeah that's about that's what i was about to say it's an amazingly complex and interesting beer for being such a low alcohol uh what's your so the and i will say too the wheat somehow survives the flavor of wheat and i'm not sure how that it seems like with all the biochemistry that's going on here it's surprising that you can have that kind of light weediness underneath you think that I'm not tasting weedy? No, I'm not. I'm just. I'm not saying that. I'm just. I don't know why it's still there. Yeah. I, <laughs> I have a friend who's a chemist. I yeah. This. It's just. It's surprising. <laughs> it's surprising that it still tastes like a weed ale. You know, it's a. Um, yeah. It's a nice. It's a very. And, and what's the alcohol percentage on this? Two point. It's a two point eight. Two point okay. five. Two point eight. It's not right. range. I brewed yeah. this a year ago. Okay. That's why the number's not completely in my brain. Mm-hmm. Right. So we brew it a year in advance, and it comes out the next summer. Mm. So that gives it time in the tank to develop some more esters. Do you ever bottle this we for, for your own for your own purposes and seeing how it'll evolve in the bottle? I have not, no. I should get on that. I should. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my list. Uh, <laughs> I know. Probably, probably you, pretty low down there to start you, with. It'll move up over 20 years. You have all this time that you're just farting around. You might as well yeah. be bottling some of this Berliner Lysa. And so you have you you brought some Woodruff syrup here. Oh, yeah. So so explain the the uh, syrup additions to Berliner Weisse and so this yeah the syrups were not part of the original beer mm-hmm. back in so the common the often known story is that 
that uh, Napoleon's troops called the Champagne of the North. Mm -hmm. It was very highly effervescent. It had a nice, it has this winey, cidery character to it from the from the tartness and stuff. But to cut some of that acidity for some people in the 20th century, late 19th century, they started to add some sugars, so raspberry syrups or cherry syrups. We had cherry syrup at the, at the pub, or the mm -hmm. group pub, and from them where I worked. And so you add that syrup, you kind of knock it down a little bit. Kind of, if you imagine drinking Coke without sugar, mm -hmm. you know, right. that's pretty much the same pH level. It's pretty, pretty tart, pretty right. acidic. Yep. So adding the sugar kind of balances it out for some people. And it was often served with a straw. There's a German guy who also went to the VLB. He was here yesterday. <laughs> he works for a chemical company. And he said, oh, yeah, Berliner Weisse. Oh, that's super klasse. But where's the straw? He said, do you have the Waldmeister? I said, yes, we've got the Waldmeister. He said, where's the straw? I said, I didn't put the straw in. <laughs> <laughs> but I did tell, uh, when I was living in Berlin, a friend of mine lived in northern Germany. She came by to visit. And, and we were at a bar in, in Berlin, and I said, oh, no, you got to blow through the straw and make bubbles. <laughs> so she was sitting there blowing bubbles through the straw. And I started laughing, uh, and I was looking at her like she's crazy, like she's from the north. Don't worry about her. But for the beer geeks out there, syrup is okay. It's You consider it an appropriate. It's, it's it not an abomination. Sure. So when you're, when you're out there selling beer as the one-man band, mm -hmm. and you go to a bar and you say, look, I have this wonderful Berliner Weisse, you can make a pesh, you can make a cassis, you can make a palm, you can make all these beers out of this one beer by just taking some tarani syrup and blending it in. And my recommendation is uh, go ahead and drink most of the, the your glass of uh, Berliner Weisse and then only at the end put in the little woodroof syrup and that way you can have the, the joy of the extraordinary quality that, that those wild yeast and bacteria bring and then, and then you can see if you like the woodroof without yeah. losing that joy. Well, we should uh, thank you for uh, being such a gracious uh, guest and host. Um, I've recently really gotten into German beers. I'm not super experienced, but um, I find your beers uh, fantastic. I think they're really exceptional. So um, it was a delight to have you. Uh, so, um, Alan Taylor, thank you very much. Uh, good luck in uh, your future endeavors. Jeff, you want to say anything? Yeah. If you're in Portland, Oregon, drive out to Lentz. It's a, it's a it, this is not going to be one of those breweries that you can just walk to if you're at the Cascade Barrel House. So you have to get in a car, but it's worth doing it. There are very few German breweries uh, in Oregon yeah. and certainly not with the German-trained brewers. Yeah, and you've done a great job with this space. And um, Jeff and I have actually been here before and dined. And we can confirm that there's uh, good food and great beer to be had here. So, uh, Cheers. Yeah, <laughs> cheers. Thanks. Prost. Prost. <laughs> what is that? What did you just say? Some void. Yeah, what does that mean? To your wellness. To, oh, your to my wellness. Well, to post, pause it, some void. And to you. So to, to your wellness. <laughs> All right, well, we'd like to thank Alan Taylor for joining us today, opening up the Zoigel House, giving us a tour of his brewery and his brew pub. We wish him all the best of success. And if you haven't had Alan's beers or visited Zoigel House, uh, you need to get yourself there. It is uh, absolutely fantastic beer and uh, a really nice space that he's created there. So a few words about getting in touch. Uh, you can find Jeff at uh, Beervana and the Beervana blog Facebook page. You can find me at Beeronomics uh, and at Beeronomics. Uh, Jeff also tweets at, at uh, Beervana. Uh, the best way to be in touch uh, through email is at um, the email address the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com. Big thanks to All About Beer magazine for inviting us to join their community of beer podcasts. We look forward to 
our future endeavors together. And Jeff has abandoned me, so it's up to me to say uh, goodbye and thanks for listening to the Beervana podcast. Uh, see you next time. Mm-hmm.